Welcome back to Legacy, the Immigrant Experience in America. I'm Helena Drago. In today's episode, we will be talking to Larissa. In 2016, Larissa, graduating from her high school in Texas, gave a speech as valedictorian of her graduating class. During the speech, she bravely proclaimed that she was one of the 11 million undocumented immigrants living in the shadows of the United States. She told her classmates that immigrants, undocumented or not, are people with dreams, hopes, aspirations, and loved ones, and who have become part of an American society and way of life, who yearn to make America great again, but without a wall built on hate and prejudice. As you might imagine, her speech caused a media sensation and went viral on social media. Larissa graduated top of her class and earned a full scholarship to Yale University. We reached out to Larissa to be part of our podcast and interviewed her after she had completed her midterms at Yale. Here's Larissa. Now you're from Mexico City, I believe? Yes. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about Mexico City. What's it like? What are the people like? What's the culture? Well, I was born and raised there until I was about 13. I don't know. My life consisted of like going to school, obviously. <laughs> I mean, it was pretty similar to the way that life is here in the sense that you just go through the day. You have dinner with your family. I just remember the good food. We would have this like tradition, like something we did every weekend on Sundays. There's this thing called mercados. And there are these like makeshift tents, I guess, and people sell things, right? Like CDs or like makeup. And then there's places where you go and eat food. And it's in this like really big open area. Sort of like the way that police stores work in the U.S., that they're just like there for the day. But this is like every weekend. And so we would go there. It would be like homemade tacos of michote, which I think is, it's like shredded pork. And then also like handmade quesadillas. And yeah, I just haven't been able to find that same taste here in the States, but I remember it. I'm telling you, we had a few interviews now. Every single immigrant so far has said one of the things they loved about their country was the food. The, a, a sense of taste is really something that people remember. Outside from that, any great memories of Mexico City in your childhood? I don't know. There's nothing like in particular that pops out to me. But I feel like for me, things were a bit different because there was like domestic abuse happening in the home. So I think that that shaped my conception of what was normal in a different way that now I understand isn't or like shouldn't be the norm, if that makes sense. It does. Yeah. What convinced your family to move? So like I said, there was domestic abuse and my, most of my mom's family lives in Texas. And so we decided to go to Texas. Also, because my dad worked in politics in Mexico, there was this uh, fear that we couldn't really go to the police because he knew people in the police department. And so then it just became an issue of safety. And so we decided to move to the U.S. where we knew things would be different or we would be more protected just because like my mom's family was closer. How many people came? Uh, three. My mom, my sister, and me. Did you come via car? How did you come into the country? Oh, with a tourist visa. So we flew in the Dallas airport. Also, we had been coming every other summer before. So it wasn't like the first time that we were coming to the U.S., to Dallas specifically. And how did you find life as a 13-year-old student, suddenly in America, suddenly living in, in Dallas, Texas? Yeah, so at the beginning, it was really just lonely, I would say. 
because my mom would go out and work a lot. And so I would be with my sister. But like I remember the summer right before seventh grade, which is the year I went into here. Yeah, I mean, I didn't have any friends at the time. So I would just spend a lot of time in the library and I, and I would read a lot. And that really helped with my English and more of my like conversational English because before it was like really formal. I really focused my energy on trying to figure out the school system in the U.S. because I knew that my mom was busy figuring out how to produce in order to like sustain us. One of the things that how we came to know of you is that high school speech you made where you confessed that you were an undocumented immigrant. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that experience, about being undocumented and what that meant to you? Yeah. I mean, when I was younger, I didn't really uh, wholly like understand what it meant to be undocumented. But once you start growing up and hitting ages at which other people start doing things that require papers like driving or like getting like a job when you when you start hitting those milestones you realize like oh these are the things that I can't really do in my specific case my mom told me that she would rather me stay at home and take care of my sister instead of go out and work because that would also require me to drive and she didn't want me to be driving without a license, which is a privilege that not a lot of undocumented people have to just like be able to not have to drive places. I think that's when I started realizing it. And then in high school, yeah, it was really interesting because from the beginning, from when I got to the US and I was put into the school system, there was a lot of I don't want to say mistrust, but that's what it felt like, that I didn't have the capacities that the people here in the same grade that I was in had. And so I was put into, you know, like I was put into like regular classes in ESL for a month or two. And when I would ask to be put in other classes, but I just went with it because I didn't know better. And, and I just wonder why that was. I think that like looking back at it now, I start to see these trends that it's, oh, that's just the way that the system works. But then when I was applying to colleges, I realized how limited the options are, even for people who have all of the, the scores, you know, based on the meritocracy in the U.S. Like even if they have the scores that, that all of my other classmates had, a lot of them didn't have the option to come to places like these because the spots are limited. And then also not having spots open in like state universities or not having access to financial aid. I just realized that for me, one of the only options was to end up in a place like this. Yale University, like an elite institution that's private and therefore has the funds to be able to pay for my school without the need for me to have outside scholarships or FAFSA grants, for example, or loans, which I can't apply for. But it's kind of hard when I didn't even realize that places like these existed until I was like a junior in high school. Yeah, so Yale's a nice place to land. Let me just tell you. (laughs) It's a, a... you know, world-class university, as you know. You got into Yale based on your grades, right? Based on merit. Yeah. With a full scholarship? Amazing. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. What is your current status as a citizen? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm still undocumented, which is actually also distinct from, like, having DACA status. Yeah, and I just wanted to make that separation because people with DACA status have like a work permit and they're not, you know, deportable. 
What Larissa just said about DACA status may have confused you. It certainly confused me, and it took a bit of research to lift that particular veil of ignorance. DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, was born out of an executive order issued by President Obama in June of 2012. It provides a pathway for eligible children and young adults, colloquially called DREAMers, who are brought into the U.S. illegally by their parents to obtain a Social Security card, a driver's license, and a work permit. What most people don't realize is that DACA isn't an automatically granted status. DACA must be applied for, and the rules for doing so are subject to change. For example, as of October 6, 2017, the USCIS stopped accepting first-time DACA applications. These days, they only accept renewal requests for existing DACAs. In other words, as of that date, if you don't have it, you can't get it. At present, there are about 800,000 DACA recipients. That's only about 22% of the approximately 3.6 million dreamers. In fact, as many as 1.8 million of those dreamers, the ones who, like Larissa, entered the country before the age of 16, were eligible for DACA, but their parents either didn't understand the program or were too fearful to apply. The bottom line is that right now, without even the ability to apply for DACA, Larissa is, as she said, deportable. Yeah, like it, it has actually really shaped my experience within Yale because, yeah, like you said, it's this institution that has a lot of like privilege and opportunities. But when you don't have access to papers or like a social security number, for example, there are a lot of even opportunities within the institution that I am I can't participate in. And it has been really interesting to just meet people here who like didn't know that that could happen because it's not common. So what opportunities do you have from here? I mean, do you have any opportunities, any hopes of altering that, changing your status? How does it work? So actually my grandpa's a U.S. citizen and I also have an aunt who's a U.S. citizen. Well, my grandpa petitioned for my family back in 2009. So before we came to the U.S., we came to the U.S. in 2010. But back then in 2009, they were working on cases from like 1996. And then it has been, what, like nine years? And then like 2018, they were working on cases from like 1998. So the thing is that the system is really backlogged and that has to do with quotas, but the quotas that don't really take into account the mobility of capital and like the need for the mobility of labor that goes along with it. So basically just really outdated. Larissa is describing what are called the family preference types of visa. Her grandfather likely applied for an F1 family visa. The F-1 allows him, as a U.S. citizen, to apply for a visa for Larissa's mother, as well as Larissa and her sister. Or, Larissa's aunt might have applied for an F-4 family visa, which would allow her, again as a U.S. citizen, to apply for a visa for her sister, Larissa's mother, and both her nieces. Okay, great. Except, only a limited number of these visas are granted each year. The F-1 limit is 23,400, and the F-4 is 65,000. This has resulted in an insanely huge backlog, depending on your country of origin. Since Larissa and her family are from Mexico, they're looking at a wait of up to 22 years from the date of filing before their visa request is even processed, much less accepted or denied. And in the meantime, Larissa finds herself in a kind of immigration limbo, undocumented and unable to do anything about it. 
And so then after we came to the U.S., we went to a lawyer and then we realized that my sister and I qualified for what is called a juvenile visa. And that's for children who have been abandoned and or abused by one or both parents. And so we qualified for that at the moment. Under federal law, 21 and under was considered a juvenile. But in that time, the Texas courts decided that a juvenile was going to be 18 and under which meant that I aged out. Then when I was around, I think, I was a sophomore in college. I was in this class called Critical Refugees, and we were talking about who qualifies for refugee status. And then we, I realized, obviously too late at that point, that based on the events that happened to my family, like we also qualified for that visa under domestic abuse. But then... I think, yeah, around that time, President Trump took office, and then one of the directors of immigration said that, like, domestic abuse wasn't going to count anymore. Also, you're supposed to petition for those within a year of coming into the U.S., but there is this clause that says that if you go to therapy, the therapist can write a letter diagnosing you, like, if you have PTSD that might have, you know, not made you think about these things all of these years and then when you actually realize what it what it was that it was abused and that you actually qualify but then after it was taken out that was basically also not an option and now at this point I technically qualify for a student visa or I could maybe be sponsored by you know a company after I graduate but because I I have been undocumented uh, the only way to get those is by going back to Mexico and asking for the visa there from the U.S. Embassy. First of all, they would check like assets, which I would have none in Mexico because I don't have a life there. And also they would say, you were already undocumented, so you have an automatic 10-year ban. Then at this point, the only way out of being undocumented that doesn't require like giving up 10 years of my life without seeing my family or something like that is getting a U visa, which is for people who are victims of a crime, which obviously like I hope not to be, and then getting married to wow. a U.S. and that's it. Yeah. So it doesn't sound like there are many <laughs> options available for you. No. Hmm. I don't know about you, but if I were in your shoes, I would be have a little fear in my life that I could be deported. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's something you have to live with. That just hangs like a shadow. Clearly, when it comes to being undocumented, there are fewer and fewer avenues available for changing one's status. Larissa and her family came to this country as refugees, fleeing domestic violence in their native Mexico. There's a difference under U.S. immigration law between the terms refugee and asylum seeker. Basically, a refugee is someone who comes into the U.S. by any means at all, fleeing valid fears of violence or poverty in their country of origin. Once here, a refugee has just one year to request asylum and become an asylum seeker. If the year runs out, then that avenue is closed. The U visa she mentioned is a non-immigrant visa specifically for victims of certain crimes who have suffered mental or physical abuse in the U.S. Clearly, this isn't a path anyone would willingly go down. So what's left? Applying for a student visa otherwise known as an F-1 visa, would require her to depart the U.S. for up to 10 years. The same restriction applies even if a relative living legally in the U.S. tries to sponsor her for what's called a family-based green card. Larissa would need to leave behind her family and her life to return to Mexico with no home, no friends or family, 
no means to support herself and with no real certainty of ever coming back to America. All this leaves Larissa in a kind of immigration limbo with no viable way to change her undocumented status. So since you've been in this country, you've obviously had some, some remarkable accomplishments. What great things have you experienced? I think the greatest thing that I've experienced is like becoming a critical thinker. I think specifically like talking about race and gender and sexuality and like nationalism and what all of those things mean. I think that was something I never really thought about. But then after coming to college, I have met people who really opened up my world and made me see it in a different way by providing me these like new frameworks to think through. And I think that in, in that way that has been really empowering because like knowing where your position is in the world really, in a way it's really empowering, but it also it's really, it can be really like hard to grapple with that because you never know what can happen. But just meeting those people, I don't think I would have ever... Or maybe I would have gotten it in Mexico, but it would have definitely not been in the same way. And I've gotten to understand the U.S. and Mexico in this like more global way, which I think that a lot of people don't necessarily like understand because they haven't had the experience in both places. So definitely having that knowledge while I'm doing what I do here is really helpful. Yeah, I don't know if that really answered the question. I would do. What are you studying, by the way, in, in Yale? Well, I'm in this major called uh, Ethnicity, Race, and Migration. I'm part of the Human Rights Program. Ah. Oh, good for you. <laughs> Actually, answer that question beautifully. I'm going to ask the flip side of it, though. I mean, you, you've, you've talked about some positive things that have happened. I would imagine that you've run into some less positive things. People who have treated you poorly, mistreated you because of not only your country of origin, but your status. You willing to discuss any of that? Yeah. It's really interesting because I feel like most of what happens to me negatively in terms of being undocumented, like while being at Yale, happens behind closed doors. Like people here are really liberal and none of them ever like come up to me and say anything negative. In fact, after coming here, I felt like I was in a safe place. Like most people's political ideology like matches mine more than like people back in Texas, obviously. But saying that, I think that a lot of people here are really privileged and they don't understand their privilege and they don't see it. And they don't think about the fact that there are people here who don't have those things. Like for example, I don't know, I just see all of my classmates, you know, go to Paris and Prague, to all of these places during their summer vacations. And then I just think about my experiences, like last summer, for example, because we're undocumented, and like most undocumented people don't have health insurance. My mom can't afford health insurance and it's not provided by her job. She, she had this like UTI and, and then she didn't have, we didn't have the resources to pay to go to the doctor at that moment. And so she just like refused to go and she was just like, let me just treat it. And then it went away. And then two weeks later, it came back as a kidney infection. And we ended up in this, you know, small clinic in the low income area where we're from you literally pay before they give you the shot like they have you have to put the cash in their hand and it's just so crazy because that's something that a lot of people here don't understand that i still go through as part of being undocumented despite myself physically most of the time being at yale 
I can understand that. I mean, these people, they don't resent you, but they can't relate to you either. Do you have any regrets related to your experiences? Anything you'd change? Anything I'd change? Yeah, I think one thing. I think that my speech was a really, like, special moment for me. In that moment, everything that I said, I really believed. I really did think saying, if I can do it, then anyone can. I really believe those things in that moment. But I think that now, in retrospect, hindsight, with the things that I have learned now, my message would definitely be different. It wouldn't be, oh, everyone can do it. That American dream that I really believed in, I realized like it's not, it's not reachable for everyone and it's not made to be reachable by everyone. Otherwise, like how do you explain people who work three jobs, you know, and can still barely make ends meet? That just completely destroys the illusion of that American dream of pulling yourself up by the bootstraps because then you realize like there are so many people who don't even have boots. You know, and so it's like we live in this illusion and I would hate to make anyone like wanting to come to a place like this feel like they didn't work hard enough because a lot of the times, even the people who do work hard enough for other reasons that some of us don't even think of, like they don't end up in places like this. I know other undocumented students with stats that were pretty similar to mine and they ended up applying to like 30 colleges and were actually not able to go to college at all because they weren't able to get financial aid packages that could cover what they needed and so that was it. And I'm not saying this is exclusive only to undocumented students, of course. It's horrible that it's not accessible to everyone. I think because I'm in here now, I get to see this other side of it. And I get to see what people are missing out, and it's just not fair. So I, now I see that, and before I did it. We end all our, our interviews with this one. Legacy is defined as a gift or a bequest that is handed down or endowed from one person to another. What legacy would you like to pass on to your descendants or to other people from your community or to your sister? I don't want people to ever want to strive to be like me. Like, I just want them to really be themselves and realize that this world has a lot of systems that oppress us and oppress who we are. And like being, being able to realize that at, at an early age, I think that is actually really, it's really powerful because, because I know these things now, I think that I'm able to see things more clearly and see a, a pathway towards a, a world where we're more liberated. And I, and I just want people to know that that is possible. Like there is a world that's better than this one. And we shouldn't be afraid of change. In a few short years, Larissa is going to have graduated from Yale University. What will happen to her then is anyone's guess. Without a work visa or social security card, finding employment will be problematic at best. Perhaps some company or organization will become as impressed with her as we have and offer to help her navigate the treacherous legal waters and finally change her status or even get a green card. Perhaps not. Larissa is, without a doubt, a brilliant, talented young person. Her immigration status notwithstanding, she earned herself a free ride to one of the best institutions of higher learning in the world. Are we, the country that educated her, now going to banish her, along with that education, back to Mexico in the name of, what, law? Bureaucracy? Our ideals of compassion aside, I'm suddenly reminded of an old adage about cutting off your nose to spite your face. We are a nation of immigrants, most of whom came to this country when doing so was far easier and far less costly, both in time and money, than it is today. 
Larissa is fighting valiantly, unable to move forward despite her best efforts and obvious worth. Unable to do the very thing that our parents and grandparents did. Unable to become an American. Is this who we are now? I don't know. Do you? If you are, or know of, an immigrant with an interesting story to tell, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us at podcast at twooldfolksdoingstuff.com. Legacy, the Immigrant Experience in America, was written and produced by Helena and Ty Drago. The music you are listening to is called Summer Breeze by Nate Blaze, found on YouTube's Royalty Free Library.